0: All right, so today we are going to continue with the second part of our lesson in sovereignty. Um, we're still in the book of Job. You remember when we, when we ended up the book of Job, uh, God shows up and says, I'm in control, I'm sovereign. And so we've just, we're we taking a few weeks here to kind of explore that subject on the sovereignty of God. Uh, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, it'd probably be a waste of time. Um, there's going to be so many scriptures, uh, and they're going to come at you fast and furious. So I doubt very seriously uh, you can keep up. Um, if you want to try to take note of the of the passages and verses, that's fine. But uh, you'd probably be better suited just to uh, uh, kind of keep an eye on on the screen. Now, last week <clears throat> we ended up, uh, and we kind of said this: that there's two there's two views uh with most generally there's two views with regards to god's sovereignty the first view is something called general sovereignty and this view believes that god could control all things if he wanted to he's powerful enough and mighty enough and he's got enough authority to do it but he actually chooses not to do it that uh he's he's kind of got a general plan but he's not he's not married to the the details the the analogy we used was a cruise ship from point A to point B. God is going to make sure you get from point A to point B uh, what goes on on the ship, what time you get up, what time you go to bed, what you eat. He don't really, he's not really cared too much about that. Now, the other view is something called meticulous sovereignty, and this believes that when God says He controls all things, for example, Ephesians one eleven, He works all things according to the counsel of His will, that He literally means all things. That means all the little Details now, ten years ago, I believed in general sovereignty. My guess is that the majority of you sitting here this morning believe in general sovereignty. Uh, I believe most of Christianity believes in general sovereignty, and so we 're going to kind of walk through that by the way i don 't believe that anymore. I believe in meticulous sovereignty and i 'll explain why as we go through here so but it doesn 't matter what I believe right not, it doesn 't matter what you believe it doesn 't matter what I believe what matters. It's what does the Bible say. Uh, when I believed in general sovereignty, I had this idea in my head, but I didn't get it from the Bible. I just, it was just, I don't know where it came from. Um, but uh, when I went to the Bible, I saw something different. So what we want to do is we want to go to the Bible and let the Bible answer that question. Because the fact is, if we're going to know the answer to this question, God has to reveal it to us, right? He, he's the one that knows the answer. He has to tell us. Um, Anything else would be just guesswork or speculation. Now, last week, we kind of waded into this subject uh, very slowly, right? And I said we're going to kind of get deeper as we go. We started out with something called preservation. And this is the idea, for example, in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, where it says, all things were created through him, talking about Jesus, and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all hold, all things hold together. so preservation is the idea that God, and we saw numerous scriptures on this God is actively involved in holding not only the universe but my my very breath and my body uh, together he if he was to pull back, job says we would all just return to the to the dust and we saw numerous scriptures on this then we looked at inanimate creation, things like the weather, uh, 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 wind, um, rain, uh, 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 snow, things like that. And we saw, again, numerous scriptures where God says, I do that. For example, Amos 4, 7, I sent rain on one town, but I withheld it from uh, another. And so we saw that God says, I'm actively involved in in that. And then finally, we turn to the animals, where we saw, again, numerous scriptures where the bible tells us that god feeds the animals. For example, one of those was the very words of Jesus himself who said this, look at the birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Now, we said last week that all of those have perfectly reasonable rational explanations, right? We we get that. They all have perfectly reasonable explanations. However, Scripture teaches us that God causes them, and and we said we, we, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because we walk that out every day. The example we gave was you you and I. If I got a raise, for example, uh, there's perfectly rational explanations. I've got a good boss. Um, I, I'm inclined to work hard. I've got special talents and abilities, and so I get a raise. By the way, who gave you that good boss? Who inclined you to work hard? Who gave you those talents and abilities? It's all God. And so we, therefore, when we get a raise, we thank God, as we should. So we we understand there's perfectly reasonable explanations, rational explanations, natural explanations. It could be a good boss. It could be a flat tire that delayed us from getting into an accident. There's all these rational explanations. But the fact, God says, I caused them all. So that tells us that just because we know the... The quote-unquote natural explanation for something doesn't mean that God didn't do it. Now today, we're going to wade in a little bit deeper, okay? Now let's start with events that we would consider chance or, or random events. You see, from a human perspective, there are certain events that happen to us or that we occur, that occur in this world that we might consider random or chance. For example, the flipping of a coin. If I said, I'm going to flip a coin, if, it, if it's heads, I'm going to go to the left, if it's tails, I'm going to go to the right. And we flip a coin, and, and we think that's just random chance. Um, other things, rolling of the dice, uh, drawing the short straw. Anybody ever done that as a kid? Whoever gets a short straw, you're the one that's got to walk through the cemetery or whatever, right? I mean, we all had these things, right? <clears throat> in the Old Testament or in ancient times, <clears throat> they had something called casting of lots. And you see this num- numerous times in the Bible. For example, when Jesus was crucified, Matthew 27:35, it said the soldiers at the foot of the cross divided up his garments, and they cast lots to see who would get what. So I want you to picture this. The, uh, Jesus is up on the cross. They're down there, they, and one of them says, "Let's just and I, I don't know how casting lots work, but it was a game of chance. And they roll the dice, and one says, oh, if, you know, if it comes up on this, you get the shirt. If it comes up on this, I get the pants. And that's what they're, they're casting lots. Now, the Bible says this, Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I put those two together because I want you to see the contrast. You see, <clears throat> Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. He's bleeding. He's dying. He's bearing the sins of the world. And at the foot of the cross, they're they're casting lots to see who gets the shirt, who gets the pants, whatever, right? And and we would think now what's going on up there is important. That matters. What's going on down there? That doesn't matter. But God says, even that I control. Do you see that? Even that. I'm in those details. Let's let's step into people now. Let's look at affairs of the nations. Job twelve twenty three. He makes nations great, and He destroys them. He enlarges nations, and He disperses them. Psalm 22, 8, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Daniel four thirty five. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Acts 17, 26, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Listen, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you don't watch the news the same anymore. You don't sweat. When, one, when China's going up and Iran's going up and the U.S. is going down and we're all sitting here, oh, oh my God. God determines all that. He, he, every empire that's bit been, the Greek, the Roman, the British, the, the Assyrian Empire, the uh, uh, Byzantine Empire, all of those times, God, God decided when they would rise and God decided when they would fall. He decided exactly each nation where the lines are. The Bible says that's all Him. Don't sweat it. Now, <clears throat> let's get even a little deeper. Let's walk into individual human beings. What part does God play in our life? Well, the Bible tells us our needs are met by God. Matthew six eleven, Jesus said, "Give us this day our daily bread." Our, our, the very food on our table comes from Him. Philippians four nineteen, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Our lifespan is determined by God. One of my favorite scriptures. This gives me such comfort. Psalms one thirty nine sixteen, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the day's fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. You see, the day you're going to die was written down before you were ever born. You can't speed it up. You can't delay it. And I, for whatever reason, that gives me the greatest comfort. It just gives, It's not chance. It's not some kind of chance. I made a joke to somebody one day that somebody could read that and say, well, I'll show God pull a pistol and shoot themselves in the head and god would say yep just like i knew he was going to do just like i knew he was going to do god says i'm in charge that's all been set out and ordained beforehand i'm taking care of that and that gives me comfort if he's ordained that it be cancer if he's ordained it be a car wreck if he's ordained it be old age he's ordained it i got no control over that i got no control and that gives me comfort our destinies are planned by god God told Jeremiah this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. By the way, that doesn't mean I know what you're going to do. That's, that's the Hebrew word knew, like Adam knew his wife. That, that, the idea there is I've got a, I have formed a relationship with you. I made a decision to know you in, a, in an intimate matter Before I ever formed you in the womb, before you were ever born, I'd already made that decision. I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations before you ever were even formed in the womb. Galatians 1.15, Paul said this, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. You see, it would be many years before Paul is on a road to Damascus and he's struck blind and converted by the gospel. But he looks back and says, "You know, in in that by the way, in that intervening time, he's going to murder Christians and torture Christians." But he looks back and says, "I was separated from the womb. God ordained that. He just brought it about in His time. Our steps are directed by God." Jeremiah ten twenty three. I know, O Lord, that it's not a man's life is not his own. It is not meant. It is not for man to direct his steps. Proverbs sixteen nine. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Success and failure in our lives come from God. Psalm 75, 6 through 7, "...no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another." Luke one fifty-two. "...he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble." Our children are a reward from God." Psalms 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb. Listen, I understand. I've got kids. I know there's a natural, perfectly natural explanation for how kids come about. I get it. But God says, when you have children, I gave them to you. It's a reward from me. It's not just, it, again, it goes back to the, the feeding of the birds or whatever. We know there's natural explanations, but God says, I do all those things. I claim credit for that. Our talents and abilities are a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Next, wheel, next week, we're going to talk about free will, whether we really have free will. And I'm going to tell you, I want you to think, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? And that's going to come into play next week. Just just look at that list, if you will. Our food, our needs, our lifespan, our steps, our occupation, our purpose, our successes, our failures, our children, our talents, our abilities. Are you just kind of getting the idea that when he says all things, he just might really mean all things? Now, let's wade in a little bit deeper. For the most part, most of you could probably agree with everything that I said there. You believe God is sovereign with one little itsy bitsy exception. you don't think that he that he does he influences a man's heart. Most people think, well, God is sovereign, but he will not mess with your will. He won't turn your heart He won't make you do anything that you don 't want to do and by the way, I agree with that, but we need to delve in a little bit deeper and see what part does God play by influencing a man's heart. Does God exert his sovereignty, exert his rule, exert his authority all the way down to a man's heart? Now, by the way, I use the word heart because that's the word Scripture uses. Scripture teaches us it uses the heart as a symbol of the location of our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, by the way, the, the Bible understands that we have a mind, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and your strength. It understands that. But it uses the heart to symbolize really who we are. It's not just, you know, the mind is really all about thinking and reasoning. But our very desires, it uses the heart kind of as to symbolize this. For example, Matthew fifteen nineteen, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So it kind of uses the heart to, to to kind of symbolize, again, this is who you really are. What does the Bible say about it? Let me give you a couple of general scriptures. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants to. He turns that heart wherever he wants it to go. From Psalms 33.14-15. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Now, that's just a couple of general scriptures. I I thought, and and by the way, I, I could sit here, I literally have to just throw stuff out because there's so many. So I picked a few this morning because I thought it would be better to look at real examples from the Bible that we could really understand, real examples where God influences the human heart. So I'm going to give you a few. Now, before I go there, let me say this. Most people believe in general sovereignty. I said that earlier. My guess is most of you believe in general sovereignty. Most Christians believe that God is uh, general sovereignty. What I mean by that is, once again, he's got a general plan, but he's not married to the details, right? It's the most attractive view, and it's also the most reasonable. And, And there's two things that general sovereignty does. First of all, it protects God from being involved in sin or being involved in evil. Are you with me? It protects him because if God kind of sits out here and and he just kind of watches over and you're down there making your own choices and you mess up, it's not his fault, is it? That's on you. So it kind of, believing in general sovereignty that God kind of sits out here and just lets you do your own thing, that protects him from being involved in your evil actions and being involved in your sin. It also protects free will, doesn't it? Again, he's sitting out here, you're down there, you're doing whatever you want to do. So, but you got to understand something. If you believe that, then you have to believe that God is just responding to our choices. We said it last week. God sits out here, you come down here, you screw up, you pray, he kind of comes in and 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 kind of gets things back in order and steps back again and you go and and by the way, the next minute, the next hour you screw up. It just it's constant, right? And that's what most of us believe. But if you again, if you believe that, you've got to believe that God is just responding to our choices. Now, here's the thing. When you search the Scripture to try to validate that, what you find is the exact opposite. The exact opposite. In all the events that we're going to look at over the next few minutes, God is bringing about His purposes, and He's doing it through the voluntary choices and actions of men and women. But in all the cases, men and women are doing what God has already predetermined to be done. Let's look at a few. Uh, the first one I'll bring up is the king of Cyrus, Ezra 1.1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now let me stop right there what he's talking about. Seventy plus years ago, Jeremiah had prophesied that Babylon is going to come against Israel they're going to take that. We're going to take the people of Israel captive for seventy years, and at the end of seventy years, he's going to let them go back to Israel. Everybody with me? Y'all remember the story and everything? Well, this is after the seventy years. This is so. So Jeremiah has prophesied seventy plus years ago, and it says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. Seventy years later, so that Jeremiah's word will be fulfilled, God moves on the king of Cyrus, and king of Cyrus says, Oh, I need to make a proclamation. (laughs) Now, in his mind, he's doing exactly what he wants to do. That is a voluntary choice. But the Scripture tells us clearly that God influenced him to do that. Let's look at Abimelech, Judges 9, 23-24. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The story here, Abimelech's got 70 brothers, so his, his dad's been really busy. And his dad has died, and one of those boys are going to become king. So Abimelech makes a deal with these men of Shechem to go kill all his brothers. And they went and killed 70 of his brothers, and God said, that ain't going that, that to cut it. So sometime in the future, God sends a spirit of ill will between Abimelech Abimelech and his conspirators, the men of Shechem. And look what it says. So that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled. You see, God wanted justice to be done. And how did he do it? He influenced those men. He sent a spirit of ill will in between them. So they became jealous of one another. They began to infight with one another. Where'd that come from? That came from God. Let's look at Ahab, 1 Kings 22, 22, 23. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. Why? Because the Lord has decreed disaster. These prophets are coming before Ahab, and they are lying to him. They are lying. They are telling him things that are untrue. Now, God has got a plan to bring disaster against Ahab, and he's using these lying prophets. Now, these prophets, by the way, are lying. on. They're they're making voluntary choices. They're doing exactly what they want to do. But the Bible says God put the lying spirit in them. He did that. Let's look at Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, God comes to, to uh, Moses and he said, Hey, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he, look at what he says. When you go back to Egypt, okay, this hasn't happened yet. Everybody with me? When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You're going to do all these crazy miracles. And you're going to say, let my people go. And he says, I'm going to harden his heart so they he won't do that. Now, if you go up and read the story, when it actually gets to the story, the story repeatedly affirms that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For example, Exodus 8.32. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time again and did not let the people go. Now, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God do it? It's both. Pharaoh is doing exactly what he wants to do. I will not let those people go. But yet he's doing exactly what God had predetermined that he would do. Let's look at this crazy story in the Bible. David and the census. i, I didn't even never seen this story until ten years ago. I'm going to give you the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Then I'm going to tell you the details. At the very beginning of the story, 2 Samuel 24.1, It says this, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Israel was just messing up. They were worshiping idols. They were sacrificing their own children, just doing crazy stuff. And so God got angry with them. And in verse 15 of that chapter, it says, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men Of the people died. So the way he's angry with them because they're 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 off worshiping false gods, they're sacrificing their own children, just doing crazy stuff. So he says he sends a plague and he kills seventy thousand men. Now what's that's pretty benign. What's really interesting is how God brought this about. Look at verse one: the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and He moved David against them to say, "Go number uh, Israel and Judah." Now, in that day, a man only numbered what he owned. In other words, if you owned cattle, you could count them. If you owned uh, servants or if you owned sheep, you could count them. But you see, God had said over and over again, Israel belongs to me. But David had a little bit of pride in his heart. He was the king now. And it says that he moved David to go take a census. Now, in the Companion Scripture, which is 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says this, Now Satan stood up against Israel, and he moved David to number Israel. So one verse tells us God moved David. Another verse tells us that Satan moved David. Now look at verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, how is that possible? Scripture confirms that God moved David. Scripture confirms that Satan moved David. And at the same time, Scripture confirms that David did exactly what he wanted to do. And he said, I have sinned. And by the way, God said, you're right, you did sin. And God gave him three choices of punishment. And David said, I I can't choose. And, And God said, okay, I'll choose for you. And he sent the plague. Now, you may ask me, how can that be? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'll give you my interpretation. You see, I think God allowed uh, allowed Satan to tempt David, just like we saw in the book of Job, yes? okay. God says uh, Satan couldn't do anything against Job without God's permission. So I think God said, okay, Satan, you can tempt David to take a census. So in that sense, he's the primary cause. So Satan goes and tempts David because, by the way, James tells us God never tempts anyone to do evil. Right? Y'all remember that? God never does evil, never tempts anyone. So he gave Satan permission to do it. And, of course, David is sitting there with his pride in his heart. And when the temptation comes, he could have said no, but he said, I think I'll do that. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. So God is the primary cause, Satan and David himself are the secondary causes. Let's look at this one. This is a, a, a story about the Assyrians, it's Isaiah ten five through 7 It says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what He intends. This is not what He has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. You see, God is saying, I'm bringing the Assyrians against Israel. I'm doing that. They are the, they are the, the rod of my wrath. But that's not what He thinks He's doing. Does everybody see that? In other words, the Assyrians are doing exactly what they want to do. They are making a free, voluntary choice to go wage war but they're doing exactly what God predetermined to be done. By the way, if you read ahead, it says this, When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes, for he says, by the strength of my hand, I did that. Do you see that? That's the sovereignty of God, a king, and a nation doing exactly what he predetermined to be done, yet God says they're doing exactly what they want to do, and when it's all said and done, I'll punish them for what they did. You see, God's not reacting. Does everybody see what I'm trying to get across here today? God's not reacting in in, any of these. They're just doing what he's predetermined to be done. You see, in the story of the Assyrians, we see two truths clearly taught in Scripture. First, is the sovereignty of God. God is 100% in control of the situations. He is bringing about His plans and His purposes. But we also see the responsibility of man. Men and women are 100% free to choose and do exactly what they want to do, and they are 100% responsible for their choices. Both of those are taught clearly side by side, side by side. I want you to notice in that passage, the Assyrians aren't puppets. They have intentions. They have purposes. They are prideful. They're making their own choices. They're fulfilling their own desires. But God says they're doing exactly what I want them to do. We see the exact same thing in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah 25, 9. I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. By the way, it hasn't happened yet. God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon against my people. And I'm going to I'm going to lay waste because of all the stuff they've done. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. You see, how can they be guilty if they're not doing what they want to do? God's not forcing them. How these two things coexist blows our mind. But they're clearly taught in Scripture over and over and over and over again. I'll close with this final example, the crucifixion. Acts four twenty-seven 27-28, probably the most evil event that ever happened in history, says this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. Now think about that. That's literally hundreds of people. Herod. Pontius Pilate, uh, the Gentiles, the centurions, the Roman guard, all the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Pharisees, all the Jews. I and mean, we're talking literally hundreds of people that were involved in this crucifixion, all of them making voluntary choices, doing exactly what they want to do when they hollered, killing, crucifying. Nobody was making them do that. They were doing it out of their own free will but the Bible says they were there doing whatever His hand and His purpose determined beforehand would be done. These are all voluntary, uncoerced choices. Nobody's making them do these things. They are 100% responsible for those choices, yet they are doing exactly what God has already predetermined to be done. How is that possible? How is that possible? You see, I said earlier, most people believe in general sovereignty because it keeps it. it, it it's very reasonable when you think about it, right? God kind of sits out here, and we're here, and we just kind of do whatever we want to do, and that keeps God from being involved in our sin. That keeps God from being involved in evil events. God is just responding to our choices. The problem with it is that is completely unscriptural. You cannot back that up with scripture. Not at all. Now, that brings us to a problem. We need to deal with two subjects, and we're going to deal with these over the next two weeks. Number one is free will. Do we really have free will? Okay, I'll give you a hint. You're not near as free as you think you are. I'll just give you a hint. You're not near as free as you you think you are, and I'll explain that next week. The other problem we've got to deal with is what I call the problem of evil. Because we see God actively involved in bringing about evil events. And we have to deal with that. What does the Bible tell us about that? We'll deal with those over the next two weeks. But for now, are you starting to get that all things just might actually mean all things? Now, I want to close with something today that might help you. A, A lot of times, I remember when I was reading all this and studying I would go to bed at night and my head would hurt. Because I was trying to rectify this and ba- how, to, how can this be and how can that be? I, I could see it right on the page that it was teaching both things, but they just didn't coincide together. And it gave me a headache thinking about all of it. And I, and I ran across a guy one time and I was reading something and he, and he explained something that helped me a lot. And I, and I call it Above the Arch. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to imagine for a moment a, a hypothetical world Okay. And in this hypothetical world, every living thing is a plant. Okay. There's no, every, everything in this hypothetical world is a plant. Now, I want you to imagine two plants are arguing with, with one another. And they're saying, you know what? There is no way God could ever make creatures that could move around on the earth. That, that's impossible. After all, how would they carry their roots with them? Or, or or where would they get their nourishment? Everybody knows you gotta have roots, you gotta be plant your roots in the ground in order to survive. That that would be impossible. You see, the plants would be limiting God based on their own experience. Are you with me? See, they, they don't know anything else. They don't have concepts of anything else, and so they say, That's it, God can't do that. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, a higher world. And this world is populated only by dogs, just nothing but dogs. And then I want you to imagine that these dogs are arguing with one another, that there's no way that God could make creatures that could put their their barks on paper and then send them to one another and communicate. There's no way God could do that. That's impossible. Everybody knows you can't communicate without uh, sound and you can't communicate without smelling. Everybody knows that. That's, that would be impossible for God to do that. See, a dog who has no concept of a written language, to God, that to him, that would be impossible. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't even, it's not even on their radar. See, once again, dogs would be limiting God based on their experience as dogs. Now, I want you to imagine a world where human beings are arguing that there's no way God could control all things and at the same time still allow us to have free will to choose what we want to do. That's impossible. That's that's preposterous. You see, the problem is, we have a lot of difficulty as human beings grasping ideas and concepts that don't fit in our experience. But God is God. Shouldn't we expect God to be able to do and act and think in ways that we have no concept of? Yes. See, we've got finite minds. And, and it really, if we try to take God and put him into our little box, we're just like those plants and we're just like those dogs and say, there's no way God can do that, so you have to do it this way, God. We need to be very careful of that. I, I, call, this God is, I, I call this God is above the arch. What I mean by this is this on this world we have an experience right we here on the earth we we have certain experiences we understand we understand how we communicate we understand uh, uh, responsibility we understand all these things right and we understand even up in the heavenlies we understand uh, what science have discovered we understand even from the bible the things that god has allowed us but there is a point where God is what I call above the arch. There is a place that God inhabits that we have no concept of what He can do. No, It's not even on our radar. He is above that arch. Listen, the Bible puts it this way, Isaiah 55, 8, 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. In fact, as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are that much higher than your ways. You cannot put him in a box just because it doesn't fit with your experience. Psalms one forty five three, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm seven five, Great is the Lord and mighty in power, His understanding is infinite. Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. What Paul is saying in a a different terminology is he's above the arch. There's just a place that we, we can never go there. We can never understand him to a certain extent. Now listen, do you understand we can never fully understand God? Does everybody get that? But not only can we never fully understand God, we can never fully understand one single thing about God. See, we can take these great truths of Scripture about God. We can look at His love, His mercy, His grace, His his power, His authority. But if you took just one of those things, just just say you took His love, and you spent the rest of your life 24-7 just looking into that one thing at the end of your life, you would still be woeful. You still wouldn't understand the one thing. That's how deep it is. His ways are past finding out. His greatness is unsearchable. So we not only can we not know God, we can't even know one thing about God exhaustively. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, except that nobody can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. What he's saying is you, 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 nobody can understand what God does from beginning to end. You can understand pieces of it and parts of it, but nobody can ever understand the whole thing, even though he's put eternity in our heart. But let me tell you, that doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean that we don't give ourselves to the task with everything that's in us. You see, God has revealed Himself to us in the Bible. And He's done that for a reason, because He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him. Jeremiah 9, 23-24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this one thing, that he understands and knows me. You want to brag about something? You want to glory in something? You want to say, look at me, glory in this. Look what I know about God. Glory in that. I want to close with a quote. This is not biblical. This is just a quote from a man. It's, it's my favorite quote. It's A.W. Tozer. He said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Man, I love that quote. I love that quote. Do you understand that what we're doing here this morning is more important than curing cancer? As great a thing as that would be, it's temporary it's just a temporary thing the knowledge of god is eternal what a what an honor what a privilege people i was thinking this morning people are out fishing people are out uh going to shopping people are out watching tea people doing all these things and we get to come into this room and talk about the greatest subject that never ends and it's so deep that you can just keep mining it and mining it and mining, and you just he just gets bigger and bigger and greater and greater if the most important thing about us is what we think about God, is it? doesn't it suffice it to say that it's also important that we know the right things about God? Who He really is, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it doesn't fit into our nice little box, it's imperative that we know Him as He really is. Next week, we're going to turn to our third lesson in sovereignty, and we're going to delve into free will. Do human beings have a true free will? will. Let's pray.